You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, along with its associated websites, One Step Off the Grid and The Driven. And... Um, the newly launched uh, Switched On, focus on electrification. Joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. David, I trust you are well. Charles, I'm well. I trust our listeners are well. We've got a great guest, but uh, I think uh, we owe a vote of thanks to to the CEC, which uh, just held a wonderful summit. Didn't it? it was a fantastic summit, and one of the highlights of that summit was a uh, presentation from Anna Scarback from Climate Works um, on the sort of uh, decarbonisation of the industrial sector. And we'll have Anna on in a moment. But um, another highlight, David, was also receiving the um, jointly with um, um, Graham Redfern from the. Guard in the uh, Clean Energy uh, Council Media Award for this very podcast. So um, congratulations to you, David. Um, thank you very much to all the people involved in this podcast, particularly the producers, um, Anne and Sam and... Um, our sponsors and our sponsors. Yes, we should uh, we should mention them. Part on Nevergen right now. I almost got pulled off the stage when I mentioned them at the uh, dinner last week. But um, anyway, um, and of course, they, thanks very much to all the people who came up and just sort of said how much they enjoyed the podcast. Uh, it was really just quite gratifying. Um, you know, people sort of recognise our voices; they don't know what we look like, or some of them do. But it was just really nice just to sort of get that feedback. So um, um, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. And uh, well done to you, David. And um, well, it's a pleasure to be uh, sharing an award with you, Charles, and uh, I guess with Graham Redfern. Although I'd have liked to have won it by ourselves, but uh, <laughs> competitive bastard right to the end. Do you know we've been doing this for six years? Unbelievable. But I must say that I, I think myself, uh, Renew Economy, uh, deserves its own special award. Uh, uh, without wanting to spend too much time on it because it's really been an absolute beacon, uh, not just for renewable energy reporting, but I think myself for coverage of the energy sector uh, in general, which is of course more and more renewable. But look, let's stop talking about awards and uh, talk about problems. And I think uh, uh, social license and transmission and farmers needing to be treated as if they're kings of their land and uh, uh, have to you know have to have a diplomatic exchange before you can be invited onto a farm. Uh, <laughs> David, let's get back. Let, let's do that after our interview with um, Anna Scarbeck from uh, Climate Works. Anna Scarbeck, uh, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, actually, welcome back because I think we had you on yes. a, a few years ago. Um, you've since done a lot of work, or Climate Works has done a lot of work about the decarbonisation of the Australian industry. And look, David and I both listened to your presentation at the Clean Energy Summit last week, and we both texted each other about the same time and said, "Look, we must get Anna back onto the podcast." So, thank you very much for getting here. Um, look, I, I guess one of the constant things we we, we hear is that decarbonising industry is really, really expensive and really, really hard. What do you say to that? Both of those things are true to some degree, but it's also solvable. And so it's a bit like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. You would have said that decarbonising electricity was 
really expensive and really hard. When we first started out at Climateworks, our first report in 2010 of reducing emissions for Australia showed how expensive solar panels were back then. Uh, and it wasn't the first thing in the Mac curve, if you'll recall, when we used to do marginal abatement cost curves. Now we solve for net zero and we back solve, which, which is actually the opposite of what Mac curves used to do, which was start of where you are today and incrementally slice forward the, the next, that um, you know, from least cost to next least cost and it got more expensive across to the right-hand side of the curve. The difference since the Paris Agreement is we know what net zero requires. We know we need to eliminate all emissions, not just um, reduce a little bit more than last year. So it changes the way you think and the way you plan. Um, so, so I think to, the short answer to your question is yes, decarbonising large scale heavy industry that's very energy intensive and emissions intensive does require large scale investment. The, the definition of hard, is it hard? It is achievable. There are technologies that can eliminate over 90% of the emissions in all of the heavy industry supply chains that we studied. Mm. Hard, of course, means, well, from where are you starting? What are the current economic signals and the current policies? And are they fit for purpose for this task? No, not yet. But can they be made to be? Yes. One of the um, conclusions of um, one of your reports that um, you've produced over the last couple of months was in the nature of how you approach this decarbonisation and industry led could be slow, could be difficult. But a coordinated um, focus, which I guess means involving governments or strong policies and supported by industries, is obviously the most efficient and you can actually achieve big redu reductions in um, at, you know, relatively or, or much lower cost. So what are you saying here basically is that you just can't let industry to get on and do it by themselves? They need to be encouraged or brought along by government and, and strong targets? Well, I think that the names of those scenarios reflect policy settings and industry led meant when industry wants to decarbonize but the, but the policy settings and the rest of the economy isn't industry hits its own economic limits uh in in terms of um, the need to bring forward new technologies that haven't had r d investment for example uh the need to compete with other sectors that um aren't decarbonizing at the same pace for example so it's really about what signals exist in the market or the economic settings. So the three different scenarios were essentially BAU. So assume the signals are what they are today. Um, and that was what, uh, and, and, and then industry ladies, well, industry is trying to do some of the work, but it needs the energy system to transform as well. It also needs trading partners and buyers of the green products. Um, whereas the coordinated approach is at the other end. So we had three scenarios. Um, and uh, the coordinated approach was when all sectors, industry, finance and government are solving for net zero. And that's, what, that's when we found it's far more efficient and indeed the lowest cost in terms of the energy system costs when you can jointly solve for that future state because it eliminates a lot of the inefficiency which comes from the chicken and egg game where investment decisions are stalled and paralysed and then you're not taking advantage of lower cost energy sooner because you weren't coordinating future industrial demand for clean energy with the bringing forward of the of the existing energy supply system from what it is today to the future clean energy supply system. So, so yes, we found efficiencies in the coordinated play, and that that is a, that is a reflection that when policy settings, but also corporate goals, the net zero target becomes embodied in national policy and corporate policy, and we identified also regional policy. 
the place-based approach is where you can then bring together some of these multi-stakeholder mm. uh, goals. So, I mean, we often sort of think of industry and certain sectors have been a bit of a handbrake on on, on sort of net zero and rapid rapid decarbonisation. Do you think that's the case? I mean, I, I know you were talking to a lot of industry leading industry players um, at the conference and on, on the things. I mean, do they want actually, do they, does industry want um, government to move quicker, to have stronger policies, or, or are they still want to be a bit conservative? Well, I think in the, the history of Australia's climate debate over more than a decade, it's it's certainly been the case that there there has been resistance from, from many industries. In the study that we worked on over the last four years, the industry sectors that we worked with uh, were were five supply chains and represented by 18 companies, not every single company in all of those supply chains, but 18 leading companies that together, uh, those companies alone are about a, a quarter of the ASX uh, 100 market value um, and uh, a significant proportion of Australia's emissions. Um, those companies through the work that we did and and the reports that were published those companies have themselves um, confirmed that they do wish to support government action to create the policies that can enable this transition to net zero in a um, advantageous way for australia um, and that they also wish to do their own work individually as companies and together as sectors, the finance sector and the industry sector being codependent, but also both of them needing policy. So there has been a shift in recent years in terms of the willingness to solve for and act on these net zero pathways. I think there's been a recognition that none of the sectors can do it alone. So if we, it's, I thought one of the most interesting things, uh, Anna, was this uh, uh, regional hubs, and I guess I it, Gladstone is the one that I particularly pick on because, you know, if you take the LNG processing on Curtis Island, which consumes about four percent of the LNG produced, uh, is is consumed in the compression, and also look at the gas that's consumed in the alumina uh, refineries, it seems like. Uh, a, probably the biggest single source of gas consumption in Australia, maybe West Australia would be different or industrial. And, and uh, But, you know, and you could have a very uh, coordinated approach to the alumina, aluminium, uh, LNG and the chemicals industries around Gladstone and uh, do a lot for jobs and stuff. And yet the very next day I read that Rio's written down its uh, alumina uh, refineries to, to zero effectively. Uh, and, you know, you could interpret this as an indication that they they don't want to do the work. They'd prefer to go to somewhere like Canada. So I guess my, um, I think my question is, you know, firstly, what's the role of government to, to make sure this coordination happens between the major export multinationals that operate in Gladstone, the Queensland state government, uh, uh, and 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 the renewable energy people to to uh, keep these industries in Australia and to keep them globally competitive. I, I think that's, uh, or should we just abandon them? Well, I think that's exactly the debate that the nation's having now, and there's been a recognition that economies 
all economies around the world do need to transition to net zero emissions, and yet the economic settings for the past decades have not been directed at that. So <clears throat> there's some catch up uh, requir required, um, which, which is why it's, it's been difficult for individual entities anywhere to, to be able to see forward to what the price signals might be or currently are. Similarly, we also know that for a net zero emissions world, we will need metals, minerals, resources, and energy commodities. Um, we will need iron and steel and aluminium. The next generation's sort of competitive tension is where, where are those products made? Um, and they are energy intensive and industry has grown up where energy is available and it will ever be thus and the form of energy is changing. And so I think there's there's a lot uh, of analysis around the world at the moment about what's the future comparative advantage. And, and I think nations are doing that analysis and, and companies are as well. Uh, and um, but but what what we know is that it's it's still a race. I think um, that the, the jury's out on and I think nothing's nothing's binary actually that there are many countries that have similar comparative advantages to Australia um, availability large-scale availability of land and renewable resources and trading partners and minerals natural endowments I agree with that. It's not like we've, uh, and in fact, Australia has uh, disadvantages in terms of transmission and and firming, uh, and it's working out how to, that you know if we listen to uh, what uh, Jonathan said uh, on behalf of Rio, the firming cost is is quite an issue when it comes to something like an aluminium smelter. But uh, I guess when we I look at your coordinated approach in Gladstone. Alumina, for, for our listeners, which is uh, the, the product that comes between bauxite and aluminium. And alumina is refined in a big boiler for the most part. Well, that's where about two thirds of the energy is consumed. And it's the biggest consumer of gas in Australia is alumina refining. Uh, and it seems to me, though, that that's got quite a variable energy and is well suited to being run by boilers and solar. And if you did that, uh, properly and looked at Gladstone as a, as a region, then the alumina done right maybe could uh, uh, support the whole smelter and, and the other firming needs in Gladstone for, for processes. But it might require building whole new alumina refineries. I guess my question is, uh, when you look at the cost, should governments be thinking about the, the cost of building new kit, new refineries and things like that, or just the cost of converting the old ones? Because that's what I kind of think it comes down to in some ways. Well, actually, there's an additional element before that, which is the clean energy supply. And what, what our reports show is that the common theme in all the different, all the five different industry sectors we studied is that the great enabler was very large scale firmed renewable energy. And every industrial cluster, all the five regions that we studied and the five different industry types that we studied, all rest upon that major enabler. And so the no regrets action for governments is to bring forward very large scale firmed cost competitive clean energy. What we see is that that enables the 
new industries and existing industries to start drawing on it and and developing some of those transition plans that you were just referring to then uh david and when those settings are clearer that the, the long-term net zero requirements are, are baked into regional targets government targets government support industry company targets you then do get sort of the ordinary forces of competition coming forward and making a decision on a on a on a level of playing field that's solving for a different level right so whether you refurbish the existing or you re rebuild a new um is often case by case but the question is within what set of parameters are you asking the question and what are you solving for and so the coordination piece is when you can look forward 30 years you know to the net zero economy that we know is the only safe future state for all of us then you can start to solve with that economy in mind and that's the coordination play that these that, that obviously governments play an enormous role in and that at taking a regional scale allows governments to play that role bring local state and federal and policy settings into play in a, in a in a slightly more finite way where you where you can see that future scale a bit more easily um, I'll, I'll, I'll hand back to giles in just a second anna but just in respect of somewhere like gladstone are, are you aware of what regional coordination plans there actually are like the state government might be arranging something with one multinational but not with another and and to what extent it actually sees Gladstone, along with the federal government, and along with the multinationals, as as a hub that you know needs to be thought about as a plan for that whole to decarbonise Gladstone and ensure its future. Yes, there is a lot of work underway for regional hubs. Is it properly, fully coordinated across all layers of government at a full net zero twenty fifty scale? No, not yet. A lot of it's led by state governments uh, and a lot of it is a slice, for example, hydrogen hubs or uh, clean manufacturing sort of support for new manufacturing, for example, or support for the existing safeguard facilities, um, support for offshore wind and res zones. There, there is an increasing momentum toward the hub-based approach, uh, but it hasn't yet reached the coordination scale that meets the needs of the industries that we were discussing um, at the at the recent industrial decarbonisation session. When you think about Australia's economy, over two hundred billion dollars of GDP revenue per annum is represented by the five heavy industry supply chains that we studied: iron and steel, aluminium, chemicals, other metals and minerals, and LNG. And we, in, we looked at five regions and found that almost half of the GDP value of Australia's annual exported goods is produced in just those five regions. So there is already some concentration of policy effort. Uh, my team at ClimateWorks have published a, a brief for policymakers on renewable energy industrial precincts and identified about a dozen places and, you know, there's some in every state and mapped all the state government policy programs that are underway at the moment. There, there are many, but what they have lacked is a net zero target at each of those regional places that is the coalescing uh, glue, if you like, that can bring together the new federal government programs that are arriving now under the new government and bring together some of those existing state government programs, but also 
really think about where is Australia's GDP coming from in, in the future. Yep, yep. A working back sort of thing that starts with the end goal and works back to what has to be done to achieve it in order. But I'll hand back to Giles. One more point on your question, David, earlier about the innovation and um, refurbishing existing plants and building new. What we do see is there is some amazing technological innovation happening. Um, when the goal is clear, when there is a signal to say we will need zero emissions steel or aluminium for the future of cars and wind turbines and so on, we are finding fantastic breakthroughs come. Where we're at is that some of those signals have only um, arrived fairly recently. And yeah. so there hasn't been many decades of that innovation and it's not super visible to everyone yet. But when you get the settings right, the, the breakthroughs do happen. And so that's why we're focusing on, as you just identified, the back solving. Really be clear about those end goals and invest loud and large in the in in calling forward the solutions and you, you'd be amazed at, at, at the new uh, breakthroughs that can happen yeah just to be make it clear to in my mind that would be a way of running the uh, alumina boilers uh, on solar energy because they're so flexible and overproducing during the day storing the excess heat and when you combine the uh, about two gigawatts of renewable energy that would be required to do that and add it into the uh, three gigawatts that's required or whatever to run the uh, smelter, then you could run the whole thing uh, without needing, you know, say, Barumba to do all the firming or some other firming device. And so you, you, you could um, you effectively put some of the Barumba billions of dollars uh, into the alumina refineries, if and maybe that would work and maybe it wouldn't. But I mean, if we had a uh, a really clear view of what was possible from from a big plan, then then I think better dis long term decisions might be made. But back to you, Giles. And I'm just wondering if you can, um, you, you talked about the renewable energy precincts, and I think there's sort of five major areas you sort of um, sort of identify, but there's probably sort of dozens of possibilities which you just mentioned um, in your chat with David. Can you just sort of go over exactly what these renewable energy or these industrial precincts, um, these this renewable industrial precincts, I think is, um, you know, what are their main features? I mean, my understanding is that they're powered by 100% renewables, but they're also using renewable technology and electrification to basically help decarbonize the industries that are found within that precinct. Perhaps you can expand on that. Yes. I think the key thing to note about the features of these clusters, so we've called them REAPs, Renewable Energy Industrial Precincts, we and others who we've worked with on this. Um, around the world, they're called net zero industrial clusters. We've seen them hubs. doesn't matter what you call them. There's two types of features. There's the physical features and the governance features. And those less visible governance features around coordination and policy, they're really important. On the physical side, it's as you mentioned, the reason for focusing on a, in a place-based approach, and, and we're fairly generous on the definition of place. That's why cluster or precinct works quite well. Um, because if you think about reses, the, the renewable energy zones, they can sometimes be quite away from the cluster of industry end users of that energy. But nonetheless, it's clustered. It's, it's identifiable in physical places. So we, we identified that we, there was a lot of growth in reses for, for a while, but they were missing a vowel, they were missing the I. The industry was similarly clustered 
and in zones uh, and had its own needs, as David was mentioning, sometimes quite particular needs, but generally very large scale needs. And that's the existing industry, let alone the new in, in industries that, that might emerge with, with available firmed clean energy. So the advantage of clustering, there's some physical advantages. There's shared infrastructure. Obviously, we talked about transmission earlier, that the, prov the provision of firming um, can be sometimes site-based. It doesn't necessarily all need to be grid-connected, but it can be shared in precincts. In the UK, we've seen this, and in, in the Netherlands, we see clusters sometimes where there is existing gas industry and there's pipelines and they're looking at whether hydrogen um, can be piped, they're looking at carbon capture and storage. So there's some physicality around the clustering approach where there's shared infrastructure. In Australia, we have many ports. That's a key infrastructure asset, similarly, similarly facing uh, risks from, from climate change policies and the need to be, become a net zero trading hub based on Australia's current exports that are fossil fuel heavy. So clustering is, has some physical features because our industries and large-scale infrastructure that are currently emissions intensive tend to, to be clustered. Similarly, so are the reses, the supply of, of clean energy. But matching that supply and demand has, uh, has lacked the very large-scale coordination, um, especially when subsidies involved, especially when the decarbonising over a 30-year period um, is, is more than what the current market signal provides for. So, that's when we come to the second batch of features for these renewable energy industrial precincts, which is their governance or, or policy coordination. And this is where there's a real opportunity now, building on the work that has, has, has already emerged at the state government level and local precinct level and add into it now um, it increasing federal government interest in the new regional approach uh, or the region's focused approach of the net zero authority. So the governance approach that, um, holds this potential here in the clustering approach is what we used to call joined up government in old social policy terms. When we know we need to bring together now, we've got a net zero 2050 plan for industry, we've got net zero 2050 plans for energy that forthcoming along with transport, agriculture. We've got state governments wanting to attract investment, provide some programmatic support. We've got federal governments offering some support for transmission, some support for hydrogen, some support for energy. We've got local workers and communities worried about their futures, wanting to have a say in the design of what is being um, uh, planned in their region. We've got environmental issues that need to be contended and we've got Indigenous traditional owners that should have a, a say right from the start. So the coordination of those voices and those policy objectives is obviously a challenge, right? Yeah. There's a lot to do. Mm. Nationally, there's work on that. State governments are doing work on that. What the precinct-based approach is the, is the place-based opportunity to bring it all together. You, you do have to do it all. There's mm. no escaping that. And so you can do it all in a cluster where generally the businesses know each other, the governments can convene with the stakeholders. You've got a defined zone to work with and some known players that can that, that can actually work through all the pieces. This remind us exactly, you know, so where are the biggest clusters that you're sort of identifying? I mean, we've talked about Gladstone, um, I'm guessing the Hunter Valley. I mean, I don't know whether the Trove Valley is included in this, um, possibly the Warra. I think you've mentioned the Pilbara as well. Um, where, where are just some of the, where do you see the biggest opportunities? Quinana and Illawarra were the other two, but go on. 
Well, that's right. So the study that ClimateWorks did with the 18 businesses across the heavy industry, that's the Australian Industry Energy Transitions Initiative, which uh, was supported by ARENA and a local and international um, research collaboration and businesses across those supply chains. The, the second report in that four-year program studied five particular precincts, which are the ones that um, uh, David just mentioned, Granana, Pilbara, Hunter, Illawarra, and also Gladstone. But in addition to that, my team at ClimateWorks has also worked with the state and territory governments on all of their existing programs at the precinct scale and mapped that in a, in a lengthy brief for policymakers, which is also available on our website, and that's the Renewable Energy Industrial Precincts work. And there's close to a dozen places already that where we've done that study, where there are targeted policies, some federal, some state, but also existing industry collaborations with, with some government support. So they include the five, but also Darwin, Townsville, Latrobe Valley, Bell Bay, Wyala, Upper Spencer Gulf, and Collie in addition to the other five that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and how do you, you've just been appointed to, I think, the board of the Net Zero Australia. So tell us how you sort of see that particular appointment and how that might work and, and how that can sort of benefit and maybe you know, reach that coordination that um, your, your work has pointed out is just so crucial. Yes, well, it's a very new uh, agency, so um, I can speak to its mandate rather than uh, what it has decided to do already. Uh, but it was given a clear mandate from government to to focus on three areas and to take a region's lens and so uh, it was to to support workers investment attraction and policy coordination in the regions that are affected by our energy transition So, so the emissions intensive industrial regions of australia are the places where we need to bring together these many pieces as we mentioned the workers in the industries that are currently fossil fuel intensive that need transition. Similarly, those industries that in those places are often the same places that can attract the new investment, both to do the decarbonisation of what's there, but also bringing forward the clean energy supply that can, can help create the industries for the next economy. Mm. So, so this, this authority has been established to, in recognition that there are regions that need particular attention and that the role of government here does need a coordination play and that it's more than the responsibility of the Minister for Climate Change. It's also the responsibility of of the industry uh, portfolio, skills portfolio, environment and uh, the Indigenous engagement portfolio and Treasury from the investment attraction perspective. So that's why this agency sits in currently in the Prime Minister's department so that it can play a coordination role and it has been given three particular areas of focus, the, the transition for workers, the attraction of, of investment and the coordination of policy across government. And so when I think about it, we've, we've talked about the uh, locations, regional hubs, but I also uh, want to make or ask you about the role of national um, or NEM-wide in this case, maybe it's West Australia separate, electricity pricing because when we move to a renewable energy system uh, what it seems to me is that you get this portfolio benefit from like it's well known that wind in Queensland is uh, not that well uh, 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 coincident with wind in New South Wales uh, and so that having 
wind in both regions produces uh, a lower need for firming. And when you have a big portfolio, a NEM-wide portfolio, the firming cost overall is lower than for any one business trying to do its own firming. Uh, and so I just wonder if you've had any thoughts about how, how we should think about that, because clearly it's more than just Queensland or West Australia or South Australian governments. There's a role for, I guess, uh, um, AEMO or, or just generally to make sure that the overall firmed cost of electricity uh, that's required is, 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 is as low and as efficient as it possibly can be. How, do, how does that fit in? <laughs> yes, and this is where we see the real benefit of doing 2050 net zero plans and back solving from there. And so at the recent Clean Energy Summit where we were together, uh, Minister Bowen announced that this, uh, this federal government will now undertake six 2050 net zero plans for six sectors nationally, one of those being energy uh, alongside industry and agriculture and transport and the built environment. So those plans allow that thinking to take the holistic view, what does the nation need and what do each of the sectors need to unlock that? And so I think where you're going with your question is there's both a planning need to, to think forward to a net zero state, net zero economy, I mean, as in a, as in a future state as opposed to a jurisdiction. Um, and similarly, that policy will be needed, that, that getting to that point isn't going to happen by accident. Choosing net zero means directing current economic activity towards it. And that's where having done those plans, there will need to be additional policy coordination. So market incentives, whether it's carrot or stick, whether it's subsidy uh, uh, and, and mandates for the existing agencies that we already have, as you mentioned, AEMO. Um, and all of that needs to come uh, under the banner of these net zero 2050 plans. Yeah, it's, it's more, it's that, and it's thinking about how to ensure that a business in Victoria gets the benefit of the fact that, uh, you know, there's wind blowing in Queensland at this particular time, but there's none in Victoria. Is that a problem for the business or a problem for the NEM overall? And, you know, it may require a change in the way that uh, electricity is bought and sold, or at least you could, you could think about whether the current system is the, is the right one. And the key enabler of that is when we when we rethink what are we solving for and so this past uh year and a bit that the election that uh, the last federal election was the first election in australia where no matter who won whichever party won uh, both um, any any incoming government was the first government to be governing in a net zero economy that the commitment had been made nationally it was no longer a point of contention. The issue is now getting it done. So from a policy sense, we're still relatively young on that. So yes, we are behind the rest of the world. The questions you're asking are questions that are relevant for electricity market design, similarly federal state interaction and infrastructure planning. And so when you change what you're solving for, are we solving for a, a market design that works well in a zero emissions energy market? in a zero emissions economy where what we produce and export um, 
are also fit for purpose for zero emissions. So there's quite a bit more work to do from that. It, it is solvable, but we first need to remember that we're changing the benchmark of what we're solving for and working back from that. Yeah, yeah. Go on, Giles. No, I just got sort of one, one question. I mean, we talk about net zero um, twenty fifty, um, and we sort of you know you've observed that we've kind of only just sort of really just got engaged the policies to get there. Just looking at just some of the extraordinary uh, developments in sort of the climate world, you know, the 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 bushfires, the record high temperatures. Um, I think I read the other day that you know the sea surface temperature of Florida was in thirty nine degrees. Um, Antarctic sea ice is just you know it's extraordinary the the um, the uh, the change that's happened this year. We might might find ourselves having to get to net zero a lot earlier than 2050. Climate scientists have long said that 2050 is probably not um, uh, not consistent with 1.5 degrees. Do we have any chance at all of actually achieving that in Australia and, and around the world, actually just sort of accelerating it that quickly? I mean, might we have to? Or will we be trying to suck carbon out of the air for decades after? So you're absolutely right. Uh, net zero 2050 uh, is a is a convenient shorthand for for a major new policy effort in the conversation we were just having. What our own research shows from the Australian Industry Energy Transition Initiative is that when you say net zero twenty fifty for many sectors, for example, existing uh, energy intensive industries that we studied, it means that for the electricity sector, it's net zero twenty thirty almost or very early 2030s, or very nearly net zero 2030. So that is in the work that we published. You're right that aligning to the one and a half degrees goal of the Paris Agreement requires um, particularly advanced economies to achieve net zero sooner than 2050. But what's important is that actually net zero electricity is sooner than even the economy-wide net zero. So no matter what your net zero end date, your electricity net zero date is sooner because it can be uh, from a technology sense, not easy, but possible. And it must be because it enables net zero industry and net zero transport and net zero buildings. So what we've published with the um, 18 companies that we mentioned earlier shows what that looks like for 1.5 alignment um, for solving for net zero heavy industry and net zero energy. And it is uh, very nearly net zero electricity 2030 to enable, and a much larger volume to enable net zero 2050 for the harder to abate large scale industries like iron and steel and mm -hmm. aluminium and chemicals. And, and based on what you've observed recently, I mean, do you think that sort of net zero electricity grid by 2030 is, um, is it feasible? Can we do it in Australia? Because we seem to be sort of having all sorts of hurdles at the moment. And um, just sort of overall, I mean, what's your sort of disposition when you think about the net zero thing? You are so engaged in the policy and what's possible. I mean, are you optimistic that we can get there or are you going, oh shit, this is just going to be so damn. <laughs> Both. Both. Yes. None of these questions are binary. You know, I've been yeah. in this game a long time and it changes all the time and you know, what changes what, what i find causes the change is exactly this is actually focusing on the right goal and and solving for it so there's a lot of discussion right now particularly in the on the energy transition that it's hard that uh transmissions is hard social license is hard the market design is hard all of that is true but when i think about uh when i look at it from the perspective of of having seen this over a long time I'm watching systems change in action. They are the right questions to be solving for. There are conferences every month with, with experts 
discussing this, bringing forward new solutions. There are international jurisdictional races, a race to the top on being faster at permitting and transmission extension and zone-based um, environmental assessments and supply chain scale. All of these things are hard, but they are being addressed because they are what's needed to chase the 1.5 aligned net zero goal. So it's a constant race, um, but it's too early to call it. And I think that's that's the risk of thinking that it's binary, that, that do we answer, is it possible or is it not? I think back to the first reports we did in 2010 at Climate Works, and I'm proud to say how wrong we were, right? Like we mapped out what the technologies are and we said on today's costs, they're expensive. And 10 years later, we showed those costs had come rocketing down because we highlighted 10 years prior that we would need policy to bring it forward. And so did the rest of the world and policy came forward. And what we find is that with good economic signals, technology has outperformed. That every year, as you know, the forecasts for, for cost improvement are exceeded in um, on, on the upside, that, that, that we see exponential learning rights, that we see cost reductions come down with deployment. Fortunately, most renewable energy technologies are modular. They do benefit from these... Uh, um, Le learning you know, rate effects. Exactly, learning rate effects. Um, and we've seen it in other digital technologies and now we're seeing it in renewables. My friends at Oxford have published a landmark study last year which measured the learning rate effect and, and mapped it across the global energy system and found that the go hard, go early strategy, and that is invest a lot up front, so at the front end of an energy transition over, over out to 2050, rather than a sort of a slow, gradual transition, they actually measured the learning curve benefit of that because costs come down with deployment, so accelerate deployment and you, you, you benefit from the accelerated learning curves of it, finding savings in how we deploy these technologies. That's it. That's it. There are two things to the learning rate. Uh, one is the... Uh, uh, one is the amount that costs come down from the for a doubling of the installed production, but the more important driver, typically, particularly at the beginning, is just how how much you can deploy because then you double production regularly, getting that cost reduction every couple of years. Anna, we're run, we're running out of time, and it, you've been in this for a very long time, certainly way longer than me, and uh, I think possibly even longer than Giles, which is uh, not that many people. Are, Fit in with that, and uh, but I'm reminded of when I was at work, and I had one of my colleagues was working incredibly hard, and I said it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint, and she said no, 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 it's a very long sprint, <laughs> uh, but of course she only lasted for a couple more years. But anyway, uh, uh, thank thank you very very much. It's uh, we as Giles said at the beginning, we uh, I found uh, your presentation incredibly insightful and uh, terrific uh, uh, command of uh, across the whole range of issues. Thank you. Happy to keep discussing with you. Uh, there's a lot more to do, but you're absolutely right. We've just got to keep running. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much Anna, for joining the um, NG Insiders podcast. And um, look, uh, we'll be back after a short break. Uh, and uh, 
Scarpac from uh, Climate Works. Um, part two of this podcast, David, um, you wanted to talk about um, social licence and people coming onto farms. Look, th there was um, the f a farming group, New South Wales Farming Association or something like that, came out and decided last week that we should have a moratorium on solar farms. Um, um, what's going on, David, out in regional Australia? You know it better than me. Well, I don't know that I do know, but I think that farmers are just very conservative and opposed to change and uh, renewable energy isn't what their uh, brand leaders are talking about. They want to talk about nuclear for some reason. Uh, so the fact that solar and wind work incredibly well and are been installed at a huge rate around the world, that Australia is competitive in, in, in solar and wind and may well be advantaged, but would never be competitive in nuclear, uh, the fact that farmers themselves are responsible for all the land that's been cleared in Australia and all the environmental damage that's been done with that. The fact that wind and solar farms bring fantastic income uh, to the communities where they're going in and to the individual farmers. The fact that you get new roads, new telecommunications, better electricity, so that, you know, in fact, uh, regional regions suffer as well known in New South Wales from the fact, like, for instance, you can never get a doctor to go there. It's famous. You can you can't get a doctor, you can't, the schools aren't as good, they don't have any of the decent services that uh, we expect in the cities. And, uh, you know, the wind and solar and transmission investment would bring large, skilled, professional workforces there uh, as with, with all these other benefits. Uh, and, and yet, far, you know, the, the Trump, these farmers and landowners just absolutely do not understand what is in their own longer-term interest. If, they're, if their uh, leadership... Uh, says that a solar farm is, 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 is not as good as a nuclear project with all the uh, knowledge that that's, that person has of solar and nuclear, then that's, that's the way it is. Well, we shouldn't blame all farmers like that. There's, there's obviously farming groups out there who are very keen on, on hosting and um, also sort of being involved with renewable and wind things, but it just seems to be a bit of an ideological sort of um, bent, at least with some of those organisations. And it's a bit disconcerting because, I mean, social licence has become this major issue now. Um, it seems to be getting in the way of transmission lines. And um, now we're seeing... Charles, sort of, Charles, every, every farm, every house has an electricity wire going to it. You know, they all do. We all have electricity wires. Uh, uh, what is suddenly this new problem with electricity wires? I drove past uh, a few transmission lines, I'm recording from Armidale this week, uh, and I drove past transmission lines and, you know, they were completely unremarkable. You couldn't even see them. Mm. One thing that's doing quite well on the... Uh... Sorry, that might be Barnaby on the line. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't published yet, Barnaby. Shut up. <laughs> Um, one thing that we have been seeing doing quite well um, with all the sort of hold-ups in um, wind and solar, uh, new, um, uh, new commitments and new financing and new starts is battery storage. David, I wonder what's going on here. Um, we've just seen Leo in um, announce the expansion of um, its Western Downs battery in Queensland, which is probably the largest battery associated with a solar farm in the country. Um, Neo in have done very, very well in battery storage. We're just seeing a lot of talk about other batteries. We've got the tender in New South Wales, which is going to have end up with about two gigawatts hours of new batteries. Um, Acacia Energy, which is building the Waratah super batteries, were quietly revealed. It's sort of you know, a huge pipeline of battery storage um, around the country. Um, I guess that's a good thing that um, that the battery market seems to be um, the one really healthy part of this transition at the moment. 
yes, well, I think battery costs are coming down uh, and also the price signal for battery storage is absolutely fantastic at the moment. Uh, in just about every state you look, you can make uh, about double your uh, return on capital, at least in, in the short term. That is by the margin by operating a couple of hours, two, three, four hours a day between what you can buy in the middle of the day and uh, what you can sell out in the evening. And we're not seeing much new wind development right now. Uh, so that means that we're going to, but we're still seeing lots of rooftop solar. So we can be confident or developers can be confident that uh, electricity prices in the middle of the day are going to be low. And they can also be confident that there's uh, not going to be any new competition in the evenings, uh, except for the batteries. And so that's the price signals are pretty strong. Uh, I would say also that globally, I think there are signs that wind and solar and battery costs are all coming down again uh, after the price increases that we saw last year. I was just looking at some gold wind quarterly results and in China at least you can clearly see their, their costs are coming down again right now. So uh, I think we've had a pause in, in, uh, and we can look forward to getting uh, renewable energy uh, uh, prices uh, back down to those that will uh, make it attractive. Yeah, that's interesting about the costs. Um, we've just seen a bit of noise um, in the last week or so about um, one of the biggest um, offshore wind farms in the UK being pulled by um, Vattenfall, which is a, a Swedish company. Um, a lot of these companies came in and made sort of very heroic bids uh, for quite low prices. I think there's were £37 or something like that a megawatt hour. And I've just kind of realised that you know, um, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, since the energy crisis and sort of the COVID and all the supply chain issues, they just simply can't build the project at that price. Um, I think the same thing is happening with a couple of projects in the US. Um, what's the problem here, David? Is this technology not working or is it just simply they just went through a period where just people got a little bit too excited about bidding low? I actually don't know the uh, specific problems with offshore wind uh, in Europe. I, I don't know. But uh, I do think it's a common thing of PPAs that essentially... Um, uh, within reason, you can bid and win a PPA, and then if it doesn't work out, uh, then you just don't do it. Uh, it's up to the person offering the PPA, the UK government, or it might be the Victorian government or something, to put in place penalties on the bidders so that they don't, if you like, do cheeky bids all the time. Uh, that's that's the mm. uh, general 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 issue with it. When it comes to offshore wind, it'll be no surprise to anyone listening here that I think Australia is nutty to be chasing offshore wind so hard, when we've just got this fantastic opportunity in onshore wind, uh, and you know it's much cheaper, I believe, to so solve the social license issues and build the transmission. Uh, we've already built so much of it. Why can't we build a bit more and build the new wind farms onshore, and uh, which will make make us way cheaper than than most other countries. Um, one final thing before we sort of sign off, um, coal-fired power stations in New South Wales. New South Wales seems to be the focus of a lot of attention and it's been the focus of this podcast over the last couple of months as well. Um, you wrote a really interesting piece just looking at how much money that the um, coal-fired power stations were making at the moment and why there's probably very little incentive for them to sort of switch off and at all. And I guess that's one of the reasons why Vales Point has sort of finally discovered that it can keep its machines turning for another four years or so. Well, what'll stop it is whether it can get environmental approval to keep its uh, Chain Valley coal mine, which is you know older than the power station, actually running beyond 2029 when its current approval uh, runs out. But yes, I mean, um, like Araring can is probably going to be making four or five hundred million dollars a year of uh, of EBITDA on the numbers that I look at, and none of those coal-fired power stations are going to be closing until they start losing uh, volumes and revenue. 
uh, from more solar in the middle of the day, but most of these battery competitions or something in the evening, and uh, and as I keep saying, some more wind. So they're not going to be closing any earlier than they have to. The situation for them is way better than it was uh, um, a couple of years ago, and and they certainly don't need any more support or subsidy. They've got all the, um, the, the fixed government coal prices that the government's offering them, which run out in 2024, unless they're renewed, uh, just a, basically a license to print money at the moment. Um, there's been a few people, uh, Stephanie Bashir, who's on this podcast a couple of months ago from Nexo Advisory and some others um, came out this week with an analysis, one saying, well, saying two things really. Um, one, that the grid can um, afford a rowing to close um, as long as we get something, some things built. But secondly, the need to have a firm closure target for coal. Um, that seems like a reasonably good idea. Uh, yes, but I mean, <laughs> it does, but Araring put out a closure date for itself or Origin put out one for Araring and uh, everyone's been arguing about it ever since. <laughs> well, if it came from the government, then surely people would listen. <laughs> Uh, look, uh, uh, the, the, the policy settings could still be improved a lot. And the, the main policy setting New South Wales has is to build new wind and solar, right? That's what the energy roadmap has. And that was supposed, although well, it was never said, it was supposed to force all the coal out. But because we're not building the new wind at the rate that we need to, uh, therefore, in the short term, and as I said, we fixed the coal prices uh, at levels that enable New South Wales to make a lot of profit. I mean, Liddell closed, and that's been... Um, uh, we can cope with that easily enough, as, as uh, Dylan McConnell said, because we've just uh, increased the utilisation rate of the other remaining stations. But you can probably only do that once. So, you know, the next coal station that closes will cause a problem if it's not replacement supply. You can get into the chapter in verse, like there will be some more supply eventually from South Australia when Project Energy Connect's built. Uh, once Calide Sea uh, is built and recovered in Queensland in about another 12 or 18 months, I don't want to get boring about this, but you can get more supply coming down from Queensland. All of these things will help, but nothing will help as much as getting more supply built in New South Wales. Okay, I think that's a fair way to end it, David. Unless you've got anything particularly important to add in the short time that we have? I do not. <laughs> Thank you very much and congratulations once again. Um, thanks to all the listeners out there, particularly those that came up and said hello during the Clean Energy Summit um, last week. And congratulations to the Clean Energy Council for holding a very good summit. And it was interesting to see so many people there, 1,500 people at dinner, I think up to about 2,000 people. Um, at some of standing room only on the on the on the early morning. Anyone late uh, was pissed off. Yes. I, the only comment I'd make for the CEC that that putting holding it in darkness, uh, uh, I didn't really think was a very good signal. Well, I'm not too sure if that's their call or whether it's the actual um, organisation of the convention centre. I did actually mention it to one of the ushers, but I don't think they were senior enough to respond. But anyway, um, thanks to them. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon, and we'll be back um, again next week with another episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.